The COVID-19 public health crisis is far from over. Throughout the spring, as Massachusetts hit its peak, thousands of lives were lost and mourned, mostly at a distance. And as the numbers began to slowly improve across the state, Dr. Schoenthaler became a trusted voice of reason. Referring to herself as Dr. Robin Schoenthaler, Boston cancer doctor who writes about COVID, her insights and regular musings became popular on her Facebook page and LinkedIn as people from around the world engaged and commented. Covering topics as vast as ventilators, vaccines, and virtual doctor's visits, to daily walks and signs of hope. Her perspective was what the community needed to help get through the very trying time. We are happy to have Dr. Schoenthaler, radiation oncologist at Mass General Cancer Center at Emerson Hospital Bethke with us today. This is HealthWorks Here. I'm your host, Caitlin White. Now that we're a few months into, you know, this new reality, what do you think the healthcare community will take away from the spring of COVID? Life turns on a dime. I think being exposed to the financial impacts of these things has been very eye-opening. I think the fact that there's no, that there's such a uh, inadequate public health infrastructure, you know, the fact that we, we, that masks became monetized, that people were being sent in to hazardous situations and still constantly are being sent into hazardous situations with inadequate PPE. I think people are going to leave healthcare because of the sense of being unprotected. I think some people will be more dedicated to healthcare because this has been, really brings into high relief the relationship between medicine and society and individual patients. I think there's been some really good things and there's been some some really bleak things. How do you see just society growing from this, you know, same spring of COVID? So what are some takeaways there? I don't know if it's predictable. I really don't. I mean, one would like to think that we'll all slow down and be less ambitious and spend more time with our families and and, uh, take the kids fishing more often (laughs) all that. But you know, so many people have been devastated economically mm. that, you know, I think only the, the precious few are going to be able to really alter their lives now to go back to that kind of more, I don't know, organic way of living. I read a lot about the pandemic of 1918, 1919, which was influenza, which was much worse than this. I mean, it was much worse. It targeted young Young people, it was you could die in twelve hours. It was a super bleak death. They didn't have, oh, wow. yeah, they didn't have nearly the you know medical care that we have to carry you along t- through the the crisis. You know, when you look at newspapers in nineteen twenty or magazine articles, pe- people barely mentioned it. So I don't know. I don't know how much big change there'll be. Now, what happens after most big pandemics that are of this kind of epic crisis? magnitude is that you have changes in systems, like almost always the public health system gets augmented in some way. And then over the next ensuing years or decades, it gets chipped away. And we've, we've seen that over and over. So that might happen. You know, there'll be a resurgence of interest in virus, viral research. There'll be a resurgence in funding our, our public health infrastructure and systems can change. Medical education changed after 1918. You know, things change. But uh, how much people's lives will, I don't know. Now, 
taking what we learned in the spring and looking into the fall, of course, school is on the forefront of everyone's minds. Absolutely. With school and the flu season. Absolutely no idea. (laughs) Absolutely no idea. No, the the two things. Yeah, absolutely no idea. And I've stayed away from that question completely. It's so complex. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, you know, it's much easier for a family to decide whether to get on a plane or go, you know, rent an Airbnb or, Mm. you know, go to Castle Island or whatever than it is to decide what level of risk they're willing to accept at school or what the schools are willing to accept. And it's such a complex psychosocial, economic, criminal system. You know, I mean, it's, it just covers every aspect. So I have absolutely no idea. And I'm glad that smart people are thinking about it. I, I also I also don't know what's going to happen with public transportation. I mean, you know, the, the young people in my family are biking, you know, but, you know, most of us can't bike in February. Just our, our diehard, diehard generation nexus. So those two things, I really, I just have absolutely no idea. But one of the things that I've learned from the interactions that I've had with people as a result of the missus and developing the missus is, is how incredibly differently people perceive risk. And, and just above and beyond the politicization of masking and all that other stuff, but above and beyond that, just inherently people look at risk totally differently depending on, I don't know, maybe their childhoods or something or, or you know, some people have one bad thing happen to them and then they think everything bad is going to happen to them. And some people think only bad things only happen to other people. And, you know, I learned this, I wrote about it in one of the misses. I learned this very clearly as a cancer doctor, that if I say to a patient, you have a one in eight chance that this will come back, that sends some people into an absolute panic that it means it's inevitable. And if I say there's a one in eight chance that it'll come back to somebody, that a cancer will come back to somebody else, they're like, oh, boy, those are the best odds ever. And it's the same thing with this, only magnified and everybody's experiencing that. You know, the way that people see if I walk down the bike path and somebody walks by me with a, without a mask, now that means my elderly mother's going to die, right? It's like, wait, wait, you missed a couple of steps there, you know? Was that person infected? How long were you near that? You know, and it, so that, that's part of it. It's just people's inherent mindset or how they deal with risk. And then another thing that I think it's been really impactful is that some people like me are very much comforted by numbers. I like statistics. I can think about them and, and I, they, they comfort me when they're the right statistics. Many, many, many people in my circles are completely swayed by anecdotes. And if they hear an anecdote about, you know, somebody walking on the bike path and the next day her mother dies, you know, that, that's locked into their head and, and they can't get it out. And no matter how many times they say the statistics or the, the, the rationale behind why that's not necessarily so, they can't, they can't get away from it. And that's where I think the news, the 24-hour news cycle, the relentlessness of clickbait, the everybody on Facebook talking about, you know, the beach that they were at where, you know, somebody coughed on them. We have so many anecdotes now. Our lives are completely ablaze with anecdotes. And maybe that's another reason why my missives work for some people or a lot of people is because it's not, it is, they're almost always an overview and sometimes statistical, but a lot of times it's just an overview of how the physiology works or an overview of what we know 
it's, I'm not looking at every mask study ever done that involved aerosols. I'm looking at, we know, of course, masks help. <laughs> Half of medicine is common sense. And if you put a bag to catch your thousand viral particles in front of your face, you're going to disperse fewer of them. So anyway, that's been a really interesting thing is just why are people so consumed by anecdotes and so swayed? I think a lot of it is, is because that the news now is more about anecdotes. I mean, the news has always been about anecdotes. And I, you know, if you look at the news articles from yellow fever in New Orleans or, or the pen, you know, or 1918 or even swine flu, you know, that's full of anecdotes, but I think it's worse now. I think it's, you know, we just are bombarded with anecdotes now. I mean, besides masks, what are some main ways you believe for people to stay healthy and prevent the spread of the virus, especially in the summertime with people kind of itching to get out? Yeah. Well, I think the number one thing is staying home when you're sick, period. You know, then you won't spread it, which is, you know, super hard to do if you're a a working girl. But, you know, that's probably the number one thing you can do to not give it to anybody. Don't be around anybody when you're sick. And physical distancing, without any question, you know, being 12 feet away or six feet away or maybe three feet away from somebody is better than being, you know, kissing them, right? And I'm not, you know, I won't get into arguments about three feet or six feet or whatever. It's just, it's not worth it. It, The the idea is stay out of their space, stay out of their, you know, out of the reach of most droplets. And that's the other thing is I, you know, in the misses, I just don't get caught up in the minutiae almost ever. So occasionally I probably have, but most of the time it's just big picture. And then of course, hand washing, which is super powerful. I mean, you can pick up all the grody mail in the world or grocery, a can of beans from the grocery store that the kid actually coughed on and you can put it away in your cupboard. And then if you go wash your hands, you're fine. So those would, I'm sure there's others I'm not thinking of, but those would certainly be the main thing is, being physically separated from people, being masked, being good with your hand hygiene, uh, which is incredibly tedious and hard to do, but it's been super effective. And staying home when you yourself are sick. Also not being around people for a really long period of time. And then, and this is all, I'm all talking summertime. I mean, in winter, you know, I think people that are at super high risk in the winter should be just home. People that are really highly vulnerable and at risk of getting severe disease should just absolutely not go back to not hardly leaving the house because all of this is about being outside. Now, when it comes back to your writing, what can followers look forward to in terms of continued updates from you? I'm going to keep doing it as long as there's something happening. (laughs) (laughs) Intolerably repeating myself. (laughs) And, you know, as long as I keep getting, you know, really nice feedback about it. You know, it. I can see that, you know, maybe I'll go down to it. It does take a lot out of me. I think about it all the time. Now, you know, it's definitely become a thing. You know, it's like being a columnist, you know, once a week columnist. So I'm not saying woe is me, but it is, you know, it is a bigger thing than sitting around with a glass of wine talking to my <laughs> friends, right? In fact, I, you know, I'll read something and I'll be like, oh, okay, I think this is going to go in next week, you know? I need to remember, you know, I started keeping notes, you know, all that stuff. but anyway, so I can see, you know, maybe in the later in the summer, as, as, if things calm down, I think it'll be, I think it'll be according to current events, you know, if things stay calm down, they're wonderful in Massachusetts right now, you know, minus the nine, 900 people that are still in the ICU, but 
you know, as opposed to 4,000, it, you know, things are, are better, way better. And, and that, you know, that's been the other thing just as a, as a side is that I really learned that the difference, we have to be very careful in our definitions, you know, that, you know, most people would regard 900 people in ICU as a catastrophe. And it is, it is for those people and, those, and their families. I realized a while back that my definition of catastrophe is that the hospitals are getting close to overcapacity. That's my definition of catastrophe. Everything else is problems to solve and issues to deal with. But catastrophe is when we're past, we're past capacity. We have to think about rationing, which was the scariest thing about Italy. But fortunately, we didn't, we didn't even get close here. So we did, we did great. But that was by, you know, heroic pre-planning and deploying of, you know, non-ICU doctors and nurses to ICUs and, all my hopes and prayers is that it doesn't it doesn't get back to anywhere near that point in the winter. That was Dr. Schoenthaler, radiation oncologist at Mass General Cancer Center at Emerson Hospital Bethke. Please visit emersonhospital.org for information or emersondocs.com to find a physician and find all of Robin's musings on her Facebook page by searching her name. Thank you for listening to the HealthWorks Here podcast. Subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast source, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and Spotify. I'm your host, Caitlin White. We'll see you next time.